I'm Isabel Allen, editor of Architecture Today. Welcome to Women Who Shape the City. This podcast season is produced in partnership with VM Zinc, and you can hear VM Zinc, Celine Bandal, discuss the way Zinc has been shaping the city for the last 200 years in a special podcast that sits alongside this season at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts. My guest today is Martha Thorne, who is an American architectural academic curator, editor and author. She spent 15 years as executive director of the Pritzker Architecture Prize, stepping down last year, and she's currently the dean in the architecture school at IE University in Madrid. So, Martha, tell me first of all about the role that you're doing at IE University and how you came to be doing it. I had been working in the field of publishing uh, and, and magazines, books and exhibitions as a curator of architecture. And I think it was a logical step to want to be closer to academia, uh, on one hand, because the issues were similar to the work I had been doing in other places, and certainly similar to the work at the Pritzker Prize. But the great beauty of academia is the possibility to be in contact with faculty members, with other academics who are undertaking research, trying to find and create new knowledge and then the idea that the contribution that you make, while architects make long-term contributions through buildings, I trained as a city planner and, as you know, worked in adjacent fields in my professional career. It's very fulfilling to think that you will have long-term influence through education, through young people. So now my role as dean has the best of both worlds. I work with incredible team members and faculty members, and I'm also uh, very much in touch with what students are thinking, what their concerns are, and what their aspirations are for the future. So IE is very unusual, isn't it, for an architecture school in that it has this focus or its roots in a kind of business training and its aim is to I'm quoting here to bring the best of innovation and management to architectural disciplines which seems almost entirely at odds with pretty much every other (laughs) academic architectural institution I know of so how how do you set about doing that well I have to say that is one way of approaching it maybe I can put it in into uh, other words I think the, the, the great beauty of uh, architecture design education is, and especially now, we all talk about on one hand, it's global, we have a lot of sharing of information, but it also is local. And what that highlights is the context in which we work. And I think traditionally, we have seen that context as a physical context, uh, maybe a legal context. We would be remiss if we didn't understand the idea of context in the broadest sense. There is political context for sure, but there's also economic context. There is a change in the way we work, an organizational context. So I think the beauty of the School of Architecture and Design at IE is putting great focus on all facets of the context to be able to uh, communicate with our colleague schools. Of course, the business school is quite large, but we have a, a school of global and public affairs. We have a school of law. And then there's the school, which will be called science and technology. So 
it, it just is natural in the 21st century and where we're going in the field of architecture and design to be able to communicate on a deeper level with other disciplines. And for architects to be effective, they can no longer say, I'm a technician, I'm an artist, I do this. They really have to engage with stakeholders, with all the parameters, not that they have to be experts in everything, but they have to know how to dialogue and work in a more collective way. And I think that we at IE are trying to accept the realities we're facing and trying to integrate them in a seamless way to empower architects and designers to be able to imagine and create that new future that their training allows them to do. And do you have any means at all of measuring the success of that approach to teaching and education and actually identifying how it's impacted on the city? There are probably a lot of measures, um, but mine may be more anecdotal. Um, It's interesting to me that our students, uh, while we're within Spain, a polytechnic tradition where the the way of, of entering the field traditionally in Spain has been you go to architecture school, you start your own little firm. The average size of firms in Spain is somewhere between five and 10 people. They're quite small studios. When I talk to students in our programs, they don't want necessarily, the large majority do not want to start their own little firm, do competitions, and then eventually win a prize. They have concerns about sustainability. They have concerns about community development. Um, I even had one student yesterday say that she wanted to work in a publishing house or a journal. We have students who want to go into museums uh, and do um, exhibition design or curatorship. So I I think what we're seeing in our students is that they're looking for all sorts of opportunities in order to uh, develop their career. So that's one measure that I think is successful. The other one is also uh, a little bit more factual, but it's in the same line. When we look at do our students get jobs when they complete their architecture design training? And it's amazing because all students within three to four months either have a job or have decided to go on to further training. The design bachelor in design students who complete four years, they go on to master's programs in other places to specialize, which is is really a wonderful thing. Um, Our architecture students, because licensure in Spain is granted through the academic training, many of those students, and they come from all over over the world, they may go back to their home countries, go to a third country, and they may work in an architectural firm, an engineering firm, or as I mentioned, in a museum, a journal, web designers. So they also are quite successful in taking the next steps in their career paths. You know, if we look down the road five, 10 years, It would be great to follow our alumni to find out where they are, what type of firms they're working in or companies, and are they in a leadership role? So I'll keep my eye on that. I'm also curious to know if any of them have gone into the field of infrastructure, because 
I know you've said that you think that really for the kind of modern city to thrive, we need infrastructure and architecture really to be part of the same continuum. But of course, infrastructure is notoriously difficult to get into. There's this is a guardianship of these invisible public bodies. Um, are you managing to actually infiltrate the world of infrastructure with your graduates? I would say from the side door. Understanding infrastructure not only as sort of bridges and roads and uh, the underground uh, energy systems of a city, but I would say I would say yes through the side door and perhaps more seeing landscape as infrastructure. And we know it's more and more important now than ever. I would see other areas more related to infrastructure for service. For example, mobility, bicycle paths, how do you integrate accessibility and mobility in the city, not only through big urban works and big projects, but what type of policies do you need about the shared economy, things like that. So, yes, I think infrastructure is still commonly seen as the domain of engineers and these big, heavy projects that that are very functional. But I I think it is changing. And when we look at how infrastructure is part of the fabric of the city and whether it's where the logistics hubs are located or how those vehicles get around or how people use different types of scooters or bicycles, I I think our our understanding of uh, infrastructure is also expanding. And I'm I'm curious to know how you view the role of the university in shaping the modern city, because obviously in terms of setting an agenda, it's incredibly important. But actually, what is the relationship between academia and the people who have more overt power, the policymakers, the politicians? I I hope that there would be two ways, uh, two basic ways that the university could be involved in city making. And one is directly engaging with the public sector and the private sector. Ideally, an academic setting is a neutral place where um, there's not only academic freedom, but where there's inquiry, where there's probing of new ideas. And it's a place which is safe. You don't have the press scrutinizing. You don't have the public scrutinizing. So that dialogue can happen within the university. This is Women Who Shape the City, a series of conversations produced by Architecture Today in partnership with BM Zinc, shaping cities since 1837. You can find out more at bmzinc.co.uk. And I would hope that the university of today and tomorrow would open its doors and invite the public sector and private sector to come together with academics to look at the main and those um, crucial issues that we're facing, and to be able from different perspectives to share knowledge and try to find best practices, alternatives. The second way I think universities can really help in city making is that if cities are going to compete in the future, it depends on talent. It depends not on one industry or not on tourism or other types of activities extracting value and taking it away from the city. But it depends much more on creating not only an environment that is accessible and fair and uh, responsive, but we need talent to do that. 
And we can't anymore just think, well, people will be attracted to cities randomly and they'll come here and everything will be fine. Universities really need to be the place that helps attract that talent and keep that talent. And by connecting with the city and feeling part of the city, not just an institution that happens to be in a place, but really investing themselves in the city, I think universities can attract and retain that talent that will in turn contribute to making the city more competitive, more innovative, maybe developing new ideas, contributing to the city, not just for the four or six years that someone is in education, but a much longer term. I do think people are seeing that talent is fundamental for the city of the future. It, it may not be so much just the physical environment or just government services, but it has to do with an ecosystem that works and is always creating this new energy. And what better institution to do that than academic institutions? And I mean, that obviously relates to this issue of diversity and how not just universities, but employers and cities attract as wide a range of people as possible to make sure that we're getting the best talent, we're getting diverse talent, we're making sure that decisions about the city are made by a group that reflects people that use the city. How how can we do that? That's a, a really difficult question. I think the first step, it has to hinge on a desire to do it and a belief and an understanding that The only way forward for a city, the only way possible for a city is by being diverse, by sharing experiences, but appreciating and embracing the differences, Uh, a deep belief that one model will not be sustainable, that only through diversity will we be able to react and respond and include the the complexity that is really innate in our world. I think universities, in that sense, they should be leaders in that, and and I know at IE we we are, not just from the point of view that we have lots of different uh, nationalities represented, different cultures on campus, but we really celebrate that. And we have different ways of forming groups, of undertaking projects, that have a variety of answers where we can see that different approaches, different ways of understanding the world, different points of view enhance and enrich those outcomes. I think that the whole area of accessibility of different socioeconomic groups, I think this is an area where universities also need to step in and do better. They need to be leaders in showing how this can contribute short and long term to a much more vibrant community. We can't be a city or a society that goes forward that forgets a large percentage of the population. By the same token, we can't be paternalistic towards that part of the population that is maybe uh, more fragile. So I, I think there small and large measures, working the public-private sector, again, with the uh, academic institutions to find out what's the best way to move forward to affect change. 
and it's it's a it's a huge issue but i know many many people myself included understand that cities that are divided based on ethnic group race socioeconomic groups are not sustainable and they will cease to exist that will cease to be places that provide any sort of meaningful experience for anyone. We, we, a divided society has no place in the future. So that kind of brings me on to a very broad, broad question about what actually does make a successful city. And is there an example of a city that you can look at that really gets you excited? I, I get excited about so many cities, so many cities, because I think that's the beauty of it. They, Cities share somehow DNA of bringing people together, of density, of uh, the history that they have. They, Although the history is, of course, different, there is this broad view or this deep view in terms of time. But each city is different. It has its own way of responding, reacting, its own image of itself. What makes a livable city? I, you know, I think... It has to do with many things. I, if I had to pull out some of those things, I would say that there is a shared vision. Often it's led by the public administration or public officials, that they have an excitement, a vision that is somehow shared or understood by a broader public. And so therefore, you feel part of something much bigger than yourself or bigger than your neighborhood. I think cities that don't have that, where are we going together? They're not taking advantage of the potential. Next to that, um, I, I think that cities that celebrate certain aspects, whether it's uh, the gastronomy, the physical environment, the cultural, the events, the neighborhoods, there has to be a celebration of what exists there where people participate in that celebration. I also think that cities have to offer many opportunities, different types of opportunities. We have to remember that cities go from small children to senior citizens and everyone in between. And uh, everyone at different points of their life has a different need, depending on where they are in, in their life cycle, their career, et cetera. So diversity is important. Density is important. And it's important just from the point of view of economics and providing quality services. We have to be together for economies of scale. But density is also good because we make best use of our resources. It's more sustainable. It provides for unexpected contact between people. So therefore, density is is a great opportunity. The physical environment has to include nature. We've seen this with COVID. So we can have a beautiful city, which is just buildings, but it has to provide moments and spaces that are open that connect us back to nature. And I think this we've realized is more and more important. Um, So I just wanted to ask you about your work on the Pritzker Prize What do you see as the role of high-profile awards like that? And do they actually have a direct impact on the city? I think that high-profile awards in general are evolving, they're changing. And yes, I think that they do have an impact on the city and could have even more. 
The way I think high profile awards are, are changing is traditionally awards used uh, a committee of experts and they selected a famous person that responded to what society understood as value in architecture. And I remember looking back at uh, the beginnings of the Pritzker Architecture Prize, 1979. In the first years, the committee, when they wrote about the winner, which was often an older white male, they talked about sort of nebulous concepts like talent or creativity or maybe innovation or poetry. And I think in those, I think it was appropriate for that time and that jury. But if we look at the the later years or the recent years of the Pritzker Prize, they talk more about pressing issues or values. They talk about sustainability. They talk about democracy. They talk about community building. They talk about engaging with stakeholders, addressing social issues, whether it's um, man-made or natural disaster, informal settlements, housing problems. So I think while the Pritzker still uses a committee of experts, clearly their message has been broadened. And I think this is good because um, high-profile awards get into newspapers, they get into the media, and they become news for the general public. And I think for architecture and cities to be successful and to be sensitive, responsive, and fulfill the needs and hopes of the general public, these concepts have to be discussed by the general public. So anything we do in terms of prizes or initiatives, amplifying the debate in among many sectors of society about our built environment, I think we're doing a great service. It's quite amazing to me. I always use this simile to ask people what they think about architects or the city and and the architects. And it's when you ask someone, how many times do you go to the dentist a year? Oh, maybe once or twice. How many times do you go to an architect a year? And we never go to an architect. So I think it then behooves us to use media, to use prizes, to use initiatives, to use podcasts like this to enlarge the scope of the debate, enlarge the audience, but more than that, enlarge the participants. So for me, that would be the role of prizes, not only to recognize talent, to recognize good uh, environments, to recognize new ways forward, new knowledge, but also to recognize the importance of stakeholders of our community in discussing those things. Martha Thorne, thank you so much for talking to me today. In the next episode, I'll be talking to Rosa Regina, Director of the London Festival of Architecture, about the challenges involved in taking cultural content beyond the museum and into the public realm. Thank you for listening to Women Who Shape the City, a series of conversations brought to you by Architecture Today in partnership with BM Zinc, shaping cities since 1837. Visit architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcast to download the complete collection of 80 conversations or to listen to a special episode with BM Zinc's Celine Van Dahl.